Hello, welcome to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, January 18th. We'll begin with today's five-day forecast for the Siouxland area. And today is, is possibly one to three inches of snow with a high of 12 and a low of minus three. Friday is mostly sunny and colder with a high of 6 and a low of minus 22. Saturday is going to be frigid with a high of 0 and a low of minus 6. Then Sunday is not going to be quite as cold. It's going to be a high of 27 and a low of 22. And it will be warmer yet on Monday with a high of 37 and a low of 28. Today's mini editorial is written by William Burroughs of Sioux City. And William writes, What the heck, Vivek? Was getting an endorsement from Steve King the kiss of death? Again, this was written by William Burroughs of Sioux City. The first article today is about a water leak at Sioux City's Tyson Event Center. A disaster recovery team was at the Tyson Event Center Wednesday cleaning up after a water leak. Emily Von Drack, Director of Marketing for OVG360, the management team in charge of the Tyson, said the leak was traced to the city-owned arena's fire suppression system. OVG360, formerly Spectra, took over booking, marketing, staffing, and food and beverage service at the Tyson and Orpheum Theater on January 1, 2018, after the city council voted to privatize the Tyson's operations. I think it just had to do with the weather and the pipes freezing, Von Drake said. I don't know that we know for sure what the root of it is. SurfPro is working to get everything dried out and cleared out. Bondrak said the leak, which was detected early Sunday morning, impacted one of the 10,000-seat venue staircases down to the concourse level and the main doors. Obviously, our crew was alerted right away because it had to do with the fire suppression system. We get notifications about that whether we're in the building or not, Van Drake said. It was found really quickly, luckily. After the leak, but luckily... And getting it caught really early and then getting Surf Pro in right away has been really great. Friday night's hockey game is currently slated to go on as scheduled. The Sioux City Musketeers' next home game versus the Tri-City Storm is currently slated to start as scheduled Friday night. The Muskies also are scheduled to host the Kearney, Nebraska-based team Saturday night. The water leak did force the Tyson Events Center to cancel a Siouxland Chamber of Commerce ribbon-cutting and program Wednesday commemorating the 20th anniversary of the complex. With the venue heading into a busy stretch of spring events, the ribbon-cutting will not be rescheduled at this time, the chamber said. In March, a roof leak at the Tyson halted the NAIA basketball tournament. The final two games in the round of 16 were delayed by more than two hours after officials discovered water dripping through the ceiling onto the court. Roofers fixed a patch on the roof that had been torn open and another patch that had a hole through it. And our next story is uh, caucus-related. Headline is, Trump dominates northwest Iowa but held below 50% in Sioux County. Republican caucus results in northwest Iowa followed the statewide trend Monday night as former President Trump carried all but one of the state's 99 counties. Trump captured 51% of the statewide vote, losing only Johnson County by a single vote to Nikki Haley. 
Sioux County was one of 12 counties and the only in western Iowa County that gave Trump less than a majority. The former president took 45% of the vote in Sioux County, the state's most Republican county. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who was backed by key evangelical leaders with ties to the conservative county, took 31% in the county, exceeded the 21.2% he received statewide. DeSantis won both precincts in Orange City, the county seat, and two of the four precincts in Sioux Center, the county's largest city. In Orange City, Holland Southwest, DeSantis received 91 votes compared to 56 for Trump, who faces charges in four criminal cases. Former United Nations Ambassador Nikki Haley finished third in Sioux County with 15.6%, below her statewide total of 19.1%. Trump's performance in Sioux County was still a big improvement over how he fared there the first time he ran for president in 2016. The county, which has a strong Dutch Reformed heritage, gave the businessman and reality TV star only 10.9% of the vote in that year's caucuses, by far his weakest county. Trump scored even larger margins of victory in other counties in northwest Iowa Monday night. In Woodbury County, western Iowa's largest county, Trump captured 1,565 votes, or nearly 57 percent, exceeding his statewide margin. The former president carried all but three of the county's 44 precincts. DeSantis finished a distant second in the county with 21.7 percent, roughly in line with his statewide numbers. Haley underperformed in Woodbury County. As the former South Carolina governor garnered just 13.3%, despite frequent stops to Sioux City and the campaign spending in the market. Vivek Guamaswamy, who finished fourth in Woodbury County with 6.8%, won one of the three low turnout precincts that Trump did not capture. The Ohio businessman received nine of the 13 votes cast in Precinct 11 on Sioux City's west side, with Trump taking the other four. Trump received no votes in Precinct 9 at Bryant Elementary School, where just two voters caucused. They split their votes between DeSantis and Haley. In Precinct 23, a Morningside Precinct held Trump and DeSantis tied for the most votes with 15 apiece. Bitter cold and snow-covered streets left over from last week's winter storms likely kept some potential caucus goers from showing up, said Susan Stewart, co-chair of the Woodbury County Republican Party. About 16% of the county's 16,000 registered Republican voters, or 2,746, caucused on Monday night. That was down considerably from the last contested presidential caucuses in 2016, which attracted 5,055 voters, or 27% of the GOP-registered voters. Stewart noted a state law passed a few years back now requires county auditors to classify more registered voters as inactive. There are now 6,281 inactive Republican voters compared to 1,126 in 2016, she said. Monday's caucuses drew just over 108,000 Iowa voters, or about 14.4% of the state's approximately 752,000 registered Republicans. It was the lowest turnout since 2000 when 87,000 voters caucused. In addition to inclement weather, Stewart also attributed this year's lower turnout to fewer candidates and a less competitive race compared to 2016. 
With, with Trump dominating the Iowa polls for months, his historic victory was not a surprise. As national media outlets relying on entrance polls declaring the former president the winner just about a half hour after caucusing began. And then related to that last um, statement, Iowa GOP party leader criticizes news organizations fast projection of caucus win. Many Iowa Republicans had not yet cast their choice for president, state party chairman Jeff Kaufman said, when outside those schools and churches that were hosting the state's first-in-the-nation presidential precinct caucuses, a slew of national media organizations had already declared Donald Trump the winner. Kaufman and at least one of the other presidential campaigns took exception with the early declaration of Trump's victory. The Associated Press, Fox News, CNN, CBS News, and NBC News all called the caucuses for Trump at around 7.30 p.m. Monday night, just a half hour after the caucuses were scheduled to start. The national news organization's expansive and sophisticated elections reporting operations often enable them to project election winners long before the official results are tallied, especially when the outcome is not particularly close, as was the case with Trump's 30-point win in the Iowa Republican caucuses. Nonetheless, that early report rubbed Kaufman the wrong way. The state chairman of the Republican Party of Iowa, which put on Monday night's caucuses on Tuesday morning, issued a statement about the fast cause of Trump's victory. In the statement, Kaufman said just around 300 votes had been officially counted when the news organizations declared Trump the winner. Media outlets calling the results of the 2024 First in the Nation caucus less than half an hour after precinct caucuses had been called to order, before the overwhelming majority of Iowans had even cast their ballot, was highly disappointing and concerning, Kaufman said. A spokesman for the campaign of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who finished a distant second to Trump in the caucuses, equated the early projections of Trump's victory to election interference. It is absolutely outrageous that the media would participate in election interference by calling the race before tens of thousands of Iowans even had a chance to vote, DeSantis campaign communications Andrew uh, Romeo said, the media is in the tank for Trump, and this is the most egregious example yet. Trump made history with his victory Monday night. He became the first non-incumbent presidential candidate to surpass 50% in an Iowa Republican caucus, and his 30-point victory margin was easily the largest ever by a non-incumbent in the Republican caucuses. National news organizations were able to determine quickly that Trump would be the winner by analyzing data from the interviews with Iowa Republicans on their way into the caucuses. Those entrance polls were conducted by the news organizations themselves and by Edison Research, whose national election pool is used by multiple national news organizations. And we'll now move to news briefs. Jury finds Gelva Mann guilty of second-degree murder in brother stabbing. Ida Grove. A Galva, Iowa man has been found guilty of second-degree murder for fatally stabbing his brother. An Ida County jury reached its verdict late Wednesday morning, finding Jesus Diaz, 26, guilty of the November 13, 2022 death of 26-year-old Eduardo Diaz. Jesus Diaz had been charged with first-degree murder, which carries a sentence of life in prison without parole, and after more than six hours of deliberations, jurors found him guilty of the lesser second-degree murder charge, which carries a 50-year prison sentence. A sentencing date has not been set.
Ida County Sheriff's deputies responded to a call about a fight in progress on Main Street in Galva at about 7.30 p.m. the night of the stabbing. Deputies found Eduardo Diaz lying on the sidewalk in the 200 block of South Main Street, and he was pronounced dead at the scene. According to court documents, the brothers were fighting outside Jesus Diaz's home at that address when Jesus Diaz stabbed his brother multiple times in his chest and abdomen. Witness told investigators they saw Jesus Diaz punching and kicking his brother's unresponsive body before crossing the street, then returning and resuming beating the body. Jesus Diaz has been was seen placing items in his Cadillac after the stabbing, and investigators searching the car found a bloody knife in the rear seat. Court documents said Jesus Diaz was treated at Horn Memorial Hospital in Ida Grove for non-life-threatening injuries before he was jailed. The verdict came at the conclusion of a seven-day trial that began on January 3rd and was delayed by holidays and bad weather. Teen sentenced to prison for setting ATVs on fire. Sioux City. A teenager who set fire to multiple all-terrain vehicles at a Sioux City dealership was sentenced Wednesday to 10 years in prison. Jonathan Capella, 19, of Clinton, Iowa, pleaded guilty in November in Woodbury County District Court to a single count of second-degree arson. A charge of first-degree criminal mischief was dismissed as part of a plea agreement. Sioux City Fire Rescue Crews responded to the December 4, 2022 fire at the Yamaha dealership at 2430 Highway 75 North, where they found three ATVs engulfed in flames. Police officers observed Capella walking nearby, and according to court documents, he admitted he started the fires for fun. Three vehicles and a shipping container full of equipment were damaged. Capella was ordered to pay more than $23,800 in restitution for the damage. Mother pleads not guilty in death of child. An Ida Grove woman has pleaded not guilty to causing the death of her three-year-old son in May. Billy Mosier, 23, entered her written plea Tuesday in Ida County District Court to one count of child endangerment resulting in death, a Class B felony that carries a 25-year prison sentence. On May 4th, Mosier called 911 for first responders to come to her home in Battle Creek because her son Jordan Reed was unresponsive. The child was transported to Horn Memorial Hospital in Ida Grove and then to Children's Hospital in Omaha. He was pronounced dead on May 5th. According to a complaint filed in Ida, Grove, Ida County District Court, Mosier told investigators she had driven home, found Jordan slumped over in his car seat when she arrived and believed he had fallen asleep and strangled on the chest strap of his car seat. An autopsy concluded Jordan died of strangulation, but his injuries were not consistent with Moser's explanation. In a September interview, Moser admitted she had found Jordan hanging from the rear driver's side window, the complaint said, and witnesses had reported seeing Jordan with his head or upper body out of the same window during Moser's drive home from Ida Grove to Battle Creek. Man sentenced to prison for having sex with girl. A Sheldon, Iowa man was sentenced Tuesday to 10 years in prison for having sex with a 13-year-old girl. Jose Jimenez, 20, pleaded guilty in O'Brien County District Court to one count of third-degree sexual abuse, which was reduced from second-degree sexual abuse as part of a plea agreement. Jimenez also must register with the Iowa Sex Offender Registry, and he will serve a lifetime special sex offender sentence after he completes his prison sentence.
If he were to violate terms of the special sentence, he could be sent to prison. Jimenez had sex with a girl on July 1, 2022, on a public roadway near Sutherland, Iowa. Morningside University received $7.5 million gift. A Morningside University alum has donated $7.5 million to his alma mater for student support and development of new programs. The donation was made by Dave Honick, an early Iowa native who received his bachelor's degree from Morningside in 1975. The gift will provide direct student support as well as enhance the student experience and support innovative new programs, according to a news release from the Sioux City School. We are incredibly grateful to Dave Honick for his generous contribution. This gift has the potential to profoundly impact Morningside's future, expanding educational opportunities, fostering innovation, and enabling more students to engage in the Morningside experience, Morningside President Albert Mosley said in the news release. Honick was on the football and track teams at Morningside and was a member of Delta Sigma Phi fraternity. He later pursued his law degree at the University of Denver Law School and was an attorney in the Denver area before retiring and moving to Sioux City. Honick praised Morningside's Nyland School of Nursing, the Sharon Walker School of Education, and the School of Business for their role in training students to impact the area as nurses, teachers, and other business professionals. I wanted to give to an organization where I knew it would make a positive impact, and I was confident that a gift to Morningside would make a difference for students, Honick said. Our next story headline is Bribery Charge Aired at Trial. Sioux City. After attending a conference dinner at a Des Moines hotel on November 17, 2021, then Sioux City School Superintendent Paul Galsman, then School Board President Perla Alicorn Flory, and two newly elected members, Jan George and Bob Mickelson, headed back to their hotel to share a few drinks and converse. What transpired during that impromptu meeting was a source of disagreement during Testimony Tuesday in Woodbury County District Court. Supporting a state ethics complaint, the school district later filed against Gausman. George and Mickelson testified that the superintendent tried to bribe the two new members to back Alicorn Flory for another term as board president. In its complaint to the Iowa Board of Educational Examiners, the school board alleged Gausman offered to make any of their desired changes in school operations, programs, activities, and other matters. During his testimony, Gausman, who left the Sioux City District to become superintendent of the Lincoln, Nebraska Public Schools on July 1, 2022, denied bribing the two board members. I did not offer anything to them in exchange for that, he said. I did give that opinion, which is my opinion that I had the right to do, and I did. The former superintendent told the court he instead lobbied the two new members to reappoint Alicorn Flory and Monique Scarlett as president and vice president, respectively, based on their past work. I did indicate to them, Mickelson and George, that I believed that it was the right decision at the time to consider continuing the service of President Alicorn Flory and Vice President Scarlett for another year for these reasons, Gausman said. They are both strong, proud women of color. They had begun work on an equity program for the district in partnership with a third-party provider, and they had done some really good work. And it was my belief, currently, still I believe today, that finishing that equity work would have been good for the District of Sioux City. George and Mickelson also testified that, a few days after the meeting in Des Moines, Gosman apologized for the comments he made regarding the board leadership. 
The superintendent said he sensed the pair felt bothered by the discussion, prompting him to apologize and urge the board members to vote their conscience. As a superintendent, Gaussman noted he worked for the board, and the board majority had the power to direct him to make any changes to the district they wanted. After George and Mickelson were sworn into office, they supported the appointment of Dan Greenwell, a frequent critic of Gaussman and his administration as board president, and Tyler Goodwin as vice president. Gaussman spoke publicly about the charges for the first time during Wednesday's trial over a civil suit he filed against the Sioux City District, George, Mickelson, and Greenwell, all current board members, and Goodwin, a former member. George and Mickelson were questioned extensively about the event, asking what time it took place, how much alcohol they had to drink, and what they were drinking, who they spoke to about the conversation, and more. Both board members acknowledged they consumed alcohol. They added they were not able to provide more details, noting the meeting took place more than two years ago. Gaussman shared details on the meeting and what was discussed, saying it started around 7.45 p.m. and ended around 11 p.m. The superintendent said he also had alcohol beverages, but Alicorn Flory did not, saying she ordered either pineapple or cranberry juice. The former superintendent said such impromptu meetings were common during the Urban Education Network's annual convention they were attending. In January 2023, a month after the district lodged its complaint with the State Board of Educational Examiners, Gaussman sued the district and the four board members, alleging they violated the state's open meeting laws. The one-day trial wrapped up Tuesday after over eight hours of testimony that revolved around two separate meetings the board closed to the public. Gaussman argues the board discussed more than the law permitted during the closed meetings, an action he said was taken to avoid notifying him of the discussions and the board's decision to file the ethics complaint. Tuesday was phase one of the bench trial. Judge Jeffrey Neary, who is hearing the case, did not make any rulings. If the judge finds the district violated the state's open meeting law, a second phase could be conducted to determine remedies, penalties, or mitigation. During Tuesday's testimony, witnesses were asked about the process of setting the closed sessions, documents showing Gaussman's knowledge of closed sessions, minutes of closed sessions, board policies guiding the planning of meetings, and policies guiding the pretended evaluations. Due to the unique nature of the civil suit, information that would normally be considered confidential from a closed meeting of a local government and body was discussed openly. The suit alleges that at special meetings on January 24, 2022 and November 30, 2022, the board met privately to discuss Gaussman, his professional, professional qualifications, and the bribery allegations. Greenwell and Goodwin, who served as president and vice president of the school board at the time, testified they followed the proper procedures under the state code and board policies in closing the sessions to the public. Mickelson and George also testified that proper procedures were followed. To go into the closed session on January 24, 2022, the board cited the Iowa Code stating the closed session was to evaluate the professional competency of an individual whose appointment, hiring, performance, or discharge is being considered when necessary to prevent needless and irreparable injury to the individual's reputation. The code section specifically states the individual being reviewed must request the closed session. Gaussman claims this did not occur. He contends items other than his appointment, hiring, performance, or discharge were discussed. The documents reviewed in court Tuesday showed that the 
January 24, 2022 meeting was set as a quarterly review of Gausman's performance while he was still the superintendent. Greenwell and Goodwin testified the meeting included a discussion of Gossman's quarterly review, as well as a discussion of the information filed in a Board of Educational Examiner's complaint. The pair testified Gausman was not included in the portion of the closed session discussing the bribery attempt and argued it was relevant to his evaluation in terms of ethics. Court documents showed board policy allows the board to decide who attends closed sessions. Goodwin testified that it was at the request of Greenwell that Gausman not attend that portion of the meeting. Documents included in the filings detailed Gausman's knowledge of the January 24th meeting. Gausman testified he knew about the January 24th meeting, but believed it was a regular quarterly discussion of his performance based on prepared documentation, not about other items. He said he did not know that event was being discussed during the meeting and testified he would have asked that discussion take place publicly if he had been alerted. He added by not notifying him, the board violated his due process and did not allow him to share his perspective of the event in question. Greenwell and Goodwin said they met with Gausman a few days after the January 24, 2022 meeting to alert him of the bribery claims and the discussions of it. His words were, Paul did a dumb thing and then he asked for grace, Greenwell said when asked what Gausman's response was. At the time, Greenwell said they were considering hiring an outside attorney to investigate the matter, to which Gausman responded he would cooperate. On November 30, 2022, the board held another special meeting and closed session to discuss Gausman, he claims. The board cited another section of the state court code, saying the meeting was to overview or discuss records which are required or authorized by state or federal law to be kept confidential. That code section specifically says public bodies are only allowed to discuss confidential records, and Gosman claims the school board went beyond the specification. Gosman testified he was not notified of the November meeting and was not given an opportunity to explain his side of the situation. We now have a story from the um, state legislature session. Lawmakers want to end publication of booking photos. Mugshots of individuals booked into Iowa jails following an arrest would no longer be considered public records, with some exceptions, under legislation advanced Tuesday in the Iowa House. The bill would stop police, county sheriffs, and other law enforcement in the state from releasing booking photos following a person's arrest or while in the custody of a law enforcement agency, unless the person is a fugitive, has been convicted, pleaded guilty to the charges, is deemed an imminent threat to an individual or public safety by law enforcement or prosecuting agency, or the photos released would aid authorities in apprehending the individual. House Study Bill 531 also makes an exception if a judge orders release of the booking photo to further a legitimate interest. Supporters say the photos go against due process and irreparably harm people's personal and professional reputations. Once released, the photos can be widely circulated online for employers, landlords, neighbors, and others to see, becoming a barrier to housing, employment, and personal relationships, regardless of whether the person ends up being convicted of a crime. Individuals who had charges dropped or were found not guilty can find it difficult to repair their online reputation, said Lisa Davis Cook, a lobbyist for the Iowa Association for Justice. The organization, which represents Iowa's trial lawyers, is registered in favor of the bill. 
Davis Cook said the legislature has done a lot in previous years to allow individuals to expunge their criminal record if they receive a not guilty verdict or their case was dismissed. I think this bill is kind of the next step in that, Davis Cook said. Law enforcement and media organizations argue there is a public safety interest in having the photos publicly available to provide transparency in law enforcement mm-hmm. and that the public has a right to know who police have arrested and be visually identified to distinguish between individuals with the same name. They note the booking photos come with a disclaimer from law enforcement that individuals are innocent until proven guilty. We have concerns with making more records confidential, said Doug Struick, a lobbyist representing the Iowa State Bar Association. The group was registered undecided on the bill. Struick noted, while a person's booking photo would not be made public, their arrests and charges are still public record. All this is doing is removing a picture that seems like a tremendous half measure that doesn't appear to go toward one of the major stated causes for introducing the bill, Struick said. Supporters said they are not trying to conceal basic arrest information, such as an arrestee's name and the charge, but argue that booking photos cause the subjects more lasting harm. They are innocent until proven guilty, but that photo is still out there, Davis Cook said. And that's what people are going to focus on. And that's what's going to be put out in for the world to see. Representative Bill Gustav, a Republican from Des Moines, who chaired a subcommittee of lawmakers that advanced the bill for further discussion by the Iowa House Public Safety Committee, agreed. People don't go digging and read criminal records and police blotters and dockets, Gustav said, but they do see pictures put on the Internet. Even if it's expunged, you cannot pull that down from the Internet. Catherine Lucas, general counsel at the Iowa Department of Public Safety, said the bill would be incredibly burdensome for counties to verify whether a person was convicted or pleaded guilty. There's no mechanism to directly communicate between the court system, Lucas said. Every single time they're going to get a public records request for a mugshot, someone from the counties is going to have to confirm with the judicial branch whether there has been a conviction, what's happened with that conviction. We think these being public does serve the public interest, and we think the system works well. The bill was filed by State Representative Phil Thompson, Republican from Boone, chair of the House Public Safety Committee. You could ruin someone's life with a mugshot, Thompson said. He said he's seen friends and others' reputation tarnished by an arrest that was expunged or were found not guilty because their booking photo still exists online. That can limit you in a lot of capacities. Public offices won, Thompson said. He said there was not one particular incident that sparked his interest in the bill. He noted in recent years, lawmakers in several states, including Florida, have debated and passed measures prohibiting law enforcement from releasing mugshots, prohibiting websites from charging fees for the removal of mugshots from a website, or otherwise regulating sites' practices. In other states, proponents of similar legislation have said post-arrest photos can perpetuate racial stereotypes. It can really ruin a person, Thompson said. We just want to make sure they're not used as a weapon. You are listening to the reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, January 18th on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. We'll now move to today's obituaries. Marlene D. Fowler, 80, 
of South Sioux City, Nebraska, passed away on Sunday, January 14th at a local hospital. Funeral services will be held at 4 p.m. Friday, January 19th at the Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home in South Sioux City with John Buck, Sunnybrook Community Church officiating. Visitation with the family present will begin at 2 p.m. Friday afternoon at the funeral home with refreshments and fellowship to follow in the social hall. Marlene was born on July 4, 1943, in Durham, North Carolina, to Leo and Catherine Graham Martin. She received her education in the South Sioux City, Nebraska Public Schools. Marlene married Charles L. Fowler on February 16, 1963, in South Sioux City. Marlene, a mother of five, dedicated her life to her family, embodying the true essence of a devoted and nurturing stay-at-home mom. She found pleasure in family gatherings and game nights where she enjoyed the shared moments of joy and connection. She was never afraid to try different foods. In fact, she had a genuine love for food. Marlene also had a fondness for counting money. Her love for financial details reflected a practical and thoughtful approach to life. A partner in love and life, Marlene enjoyed long drives around town with her beloved Charles. These drives were a source of togetherness, allowing them to spend time creating lasting memories. Patricia Pat Calhoun, 83, of Sioux City, passed away peacefully at Holy Spirit Retirement Home on January 13th. A mass of Christian burial will be at 11.30 a.m. Tuesday, January 23rd at Holy Cross Parish, St. Michael's Catholic Church in Sioux City with Father David Heeman as celebrant. Burial will be at Calvary Cemetery and will follow the service. Visitation with the family present will be one hour prior to services at the church on Tuesday morning. Pat was born on January 11, 1941 in Webster City, Iowa, daughter of Joseph and Helen Plummerton Donahue. Pat graduated from Central Catholic High School, Marshall, Minnesota in 1959. Following graduation, she moved to Sioux City to attend Briarcliff College. While in Sioux City, Pat met her husband, Ray Calhoun. They married in April of 1963 and went on to have three children. After her children were in school, Pat worked at St. Michael's School and the Diocese of Sioux City. In 1985, Pat began her career as a paralegal with the Department of Justice, United States Attorney's Office, and remained until her retirement. Pat had returned to Briarcliff University as an adult learner when she graduated with her bachelor's degree in business administration in 1989. Pat's greatest joys were found at and spending time with her family and friends. Her favorite pastimes included sewing, gardening, quilting, and genealogy. Pat thoroughly enjoyed the lifelong friendships that were made through the love of quilting. Donating quilts to agencies in need brought her such satisfaction. Pat's Catholic faith was an important part of her life as she was a longtime member of Holy Cross St. Michael's Church, past Altar Society president, member of Prayer Circle, Carmel Guild board member and a Eucharist minister. In 2015, Pat moved from her home of 50 years in Leeds to the village co-op community where new relationships were established and pasts were, were reunited. In 2022, Pat moved to the Holy Spirit Retirement Community. Pat's family would like to extend a special thank you to Holy Spirit Retirement Community and St. Croix Hospice for their loving and compassionate care for these last couple of months. Dr. Ronald Gales, and that's spelled G-A-L-L-E-S, 
age 75, a lifelong resident of Marcus, passed away Friday, January 12th at the Happy Siesta Care Center in Remsen after a long battle with Alzheimer's dementia. A mass of Christian burial will take place at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 18th at Holy Name Catholic Church in Marcus. Pastor Timothy Peck and Deacon Jerry Bertrand will officiate. Burial will be at Holy Name Catholic Cemetery, Marcus. Visitation will begin at 3 p.m. Wednesday with family present from 4 to 7 p.m. Wednesday night at Holy Name Catholic Church. There will be a Knights of Columbus Rosary at 3 p.m. Wednesday and a 7 p.m. prayer service Wednesday night following visitation at the church. The Greenwood Schubert Funeral Home in Marcus is assisting the family with arrangements. Ron was born June 4, 1948, to Robert Francis Gallus and Mary Coburn Gallus. He was the oldest of six children and grew up on a farm near Marcus. He attended Marcus, Holy Name, and Grand Metal Schools, graduating from Marcus High School in 1966. He attended Iowa State University and graduated from the College of Veterinary Medicine in 1972. While in vet school, he married Patricia K. Henke on May 31, 1969 at St. John the Baptist Catholic Church in Quimby, Iowa. While in Ames, Ron and Pat started their family of four children. Jerry, Lynn, and Neil were born while in Ames, and later Nathan and Greg once the family had moved back to the Marcus area. Ron began his career as a veterinarian in Marcus, joining Dr. Ray Drefkus and Dr. Gary Kluver. He later became partner and owner of the Marcus Vet Clinic, which went on to be the Marcus Remsen Vet Clinic. He practiced for 38 years, retiring in 2010. He was an active member of the Iowa Veterinary Medical Association and the American Veterinary Medical Association. In retirement, he was involved with interviewing applicants for the ISU veterinary program. Throughout his life, Ron was involved in the community. The Marcus JCs, Marcus and MMC school boards, school bond issues, and fundraising projects. Marcus Food Pantry Board, First Trust and Savings Bank Board, and numerous Holy Name Church Boards. He was involved in raising money for scholarships and started the MMC Health Professional Scholarship. He donated nearly 40 gallons of blood over the years and was proud to be a fourth-degree Knight of the Knights of Columbus. He helped grow the membership of the Knights of Columbus at Holy Name to over 100 members. His favorite job in retirement was helping his son Greg on the farm. Hobbies throughout his life included gardening, fishing, doing jigsaw puzzles, and he was hard to beat at a competitive game of cornhole. His favorite fishing spot was Big Pine Lake, Perham, Minnesota, where he knew exactly where to go to catch the kind of fish you wanted. The family requests that memorials be sent in Ronald's name. Memorials will be used to assist various groups and organizations that were important to him. And our next one, James. J. Jim. Oh, I don't know how to say this. This is spelled, his last name is spelled O-L-E-J-N-I-C-Z-A-K, 69, of South Sioux City, died on January 15th. Services will be held at 2 p.m. Sunday, January 21st at the Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home. Visitation with the family will be one hour prior to the f- service at the funeral home. Jim was born on December 14, 1954, the fourth of six children. Jim graduated from South Sioux City Senior High in 1973. Jim delivered mail in South Sioux City, retiring after 41 years of service. He enjoyed playing pool and was nationally ranked. 
He looked forward each summer to Saturday in the park, rarely missing the event. Martin Vernon Schock, 80, Bismarck, North Dakota, passed away peacefully on Sunday, January 14th at Baptist Rehab in Bismarck. A funeral service honoring Marvin's life will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January 20th at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church, 1068 Osage Avenue in Bismarck. The service will be live-streamed with the link found on the Funeral Home website. Visitation will be on Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. at Parkway Funeral Service, 2330 Tyler Parkway, Bismarck, with a prayer service starting at 7 p.m. Marvin was born on December 8, 1943, in Elgin, North Dakota, to Reuben Rudolph and Deliah Schock. His first marriage was to Julie Majerak, and from this union, their daughter Tasha was born. On June 1, 2001, he married Diane Lucille Sullivan at Niagara Falls, New York. Mark Allen Cripp, 76, of Sioux City, passed away on Wednesday, January 10th, at his residence. A celebration of life is pending for a later date. Meyer Brothers Morningside Chapel is assisting the family with arrangements. Mark was born on October 24, 1947, in Sioux City, the son of Walter Cripps and Yvonne Sneed. He graduated from Central High School and went on to obtain a bachelor's degree from Westmark College in Lamars. From there, Mark completed a master's degree from the University of South Dakota. On July 15, 1967, he married Sandra Barons in South Sioux City, Nebraska. To this union, a son, Russell Cripps, was born. Mark was a music man through and through, passionate and enthusiastic about sharing his knowledge with others. He began his career teaching music in Walthill, Nebraska, for five years before moving to Mobile. There he taught for nine years, when he took a break from the teaching circuit to open lifestyle sports with his wife, Sandy. The pair owned and operated the sporting goods store in Sioux City for 20 years. Mark then returned to teaching in Mobile, where he remained for 13 years. He finished his career teaching music at Western Iowa Tech Community College in Sioux City for five years until his retirement. Music was Mark's career and his passion from a young age. Beginning in high school, he played bass guitar in a band known as the Mustangs, and the group played for several years. They were even inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Arnold's Park. Michael Mike James Hansen, 62, of Jefferson, South Dakota, passed away on Wednesday, January 10th, at Creighton University Medical Center in Omaha. Services will be held at 10 a.m. Friday, January 19th, at St. Peter's Catholic Church in Jefferson, with Father Kevin Doyle officiating. Visitation with the family will be from 5 to 7 p.m. on Thursday, January 18th, with a prayer service at 7 p.m. at the church. Arrangements are under the direction of Cobra Funeral Home of Elk Point. Raymond Edward Van Wye, 93, of Haywarden, passed away on Monday, January 15th, at the Haywarden Regional Healthcare Hospital. Funeral services will be at 11 a.m. Friday, January 19th, at the Trinity Lutheran Church, LCMS, in Haywarden, with Reverend Joshua Lowe officiating. A lunch will follow, and then burial with military rites at Pleasant Hill Cemetery in Ireton, Iowa. Visitation with the family will be from 9.30 to 10.30 prior to the funeral. The Porter Funeral Home in Haywarden is assisting the family. The funeral service will be live-streamed on the Trinity Lutheran Church Facebook page. Raymond's family prefers memorials be directed to the 
Trinity Lutheran Church, LCMS. Robert J. Johnson, age 62, of Sioux City, passed away Friday, January 5th, at Mercy One Siouxland Medical Center in Sioux City. A funeral service for Robert will be held at 12 noon on Friday, January 19th, at the Red Oak Grove Lutheran Church in rural Austin, Minnesota. The visitation will play, take place one hour prior to the service at the church. The interment will be held in Red Oak Grove Cemetery in rural Austin, Minnesota. Orlean Fenra Funeral Home of Austin is assisting the family with arrangements. Laurel Lowell B. Johnson, 92, died January 15th at a nursing home in Sioux City. Visitation from 4, 2 to 4 p.m. Sunday, January 21st at Christy Smith Funeral Home, Morningside. The funeral will be at 10.30 a.m. Monday, January 22nd at Faith United Presbyterian Church. Helen M. McGuire, 96, Sioux City, died Monday, January 15th at the Holy Spirit Retirement Home. A mass of Christian burial at, will be at 10.30 a.m. Thursday, January 18th at Holy Spirit Retirement Home Chapel. Visitation at 9.30 a.m. Rosary service at, will be at 10 a.m., all at the Holy Spirit Chapel. Burial will be at 1 p.m. Friday at Calvary Cemetery. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel are in charge of arrangements. Daniel John Lucht, 79, of Remsen, died January 14th. There will be a mass of Christian burial at 10.30 a.m. Friday, January 19th, at St. Mary's Catholic Church in Remsen. Burial will follow at St. Mary's Cemetery. Visitation will be from 4 to 7 p.m. Thursday with parish rosary and vigil prayer service at 5 p.m. All at Fish Funeral Home and Monument in Remsen. Scott DeCamp, 72, of Sergeant Bluff, died Wednesday, January 17th at a local care facility. Private family services will be held at a later date. Arrangements are under the direction of Waterbury Funeral Service of Sergeant Bluff. And that concludes the obituaries for today. We'll now move to the uh, article um, from Kathy Yoder, who writes a weekly column. And she may be reached at kathyyoder4 at gmail.com. And today's column, as she writes, The weather last week made everyone stop what they were doing and take notice. Many plans were not only interrupted, but completely halted. Events were canceled, schools and businesses closed, activities stopped. On Saturday and Sunday, churches canceled meeting in person. Even political campaign was affected by the blizzard conditions. We were told to stay home unless it was absolutely necessary to travel. And if we had to travel, we were urged to be prepared by packing blankets, extra clothes, snow shovels, food and water snow, crazy wind chills, frigid temps, howling winds, whiteout conditions, roads that were icy and snow-packed, many impassable, we had them all. Venturing outside a couple of times, it was very slippery. The Bible verse from Psalm ninety-four eighteen seems appropriate at times like this. I cried out, I am slipping, but your unfailing love, O Lord, supported me. The Lord has supported me all my life and caught me when I was slipping on many occasions. I'm thankful for his loving kindness, for his forgiveness, for his amazing grace. There is a border fence not too far from our house. I can see it looking out 
from the kitchen and dining room windows. Most of the time when I see that fence, I see grain bins not too far away, farmland around me, and a big hill a mile down the road. There were times recently when all I saw was a boundary fence. The road disappeared. Everything was invisible. It was as if that fence was a visual boundary. Someone took a paintbrush loaded with white paint and blotted out everything else. We knew the bad weather was coming. We had been warned, but it's natural to think that our well-made plans will still occur, that we'll squeak by unaffected as to as so many times in the past, but not this time. It's that way in life, too. We make our plans and don't think that anything will alter them. We want our life to go a certain way, and so it will. We're so used to getting our own way, we naively think that our plans will never change. We don't anticipate storms in our lives, even though we see them in the lives of others. There is an old saying I remember from long ago. It's one of many phrases that has traveled with me throughout my life. Some sayings pass by like a flower flowing creek bound for elsewhere, never to return. As others go past, I bend down, pick them up, and keep them in my remembering pocket. That special place where all those things that seem important stay tucked away, forgotten until I remember them once again. It's the old Yiddish saying, man plans, God laughs. There's nothing wrong with making plans. If we did not plan, nothing would ever get done. But we need to hold onto our plans lightly not with a death grip, as if our very lives depend on our plans materializing. Twice in my life, I've had great opportunities that came out of nowhere. Each time, they were dream jobs and career makers. I'd be foolish not to pursue them, so I did. But in each case, after I prayed about them, things immediately changed. In the first, my dream job unexpectedly disappeared through budget cuts. The second time, after much prayer, I woke up one morning and simply knew that I was to take a different route. In both situations, I had such peace about what happened that I knew it came from the Lord. We need to consider what the motivation is behind our plans. Do we want to please the Lord, or are we only concerned with pleasing ourselves? Do our plans involve elevating ourselves while trampling on others? What do we hope to gain with our plans? Have we prayed about our plans? Have we asked God what he wants us to do? He will tell us. After all, we can make our plans, but the Lord determines our steps. That's from Proverbs 16.9. When I made plans on my own without consulting the Lord, they haven't turned out well. But when I've prayed and sought the Lord's will in my life, I've never regretted going down the road he's chosen for me. We should not make plans for the future like the wealthy farmer in Luke twelve sixteen through 21. He had a great harvest without the room to store it. He decides to tear down his barns and build larger ones, then to take life easy. He doesn't consult the Lord. He goes his own way. He makes his own self-serving plans. There's nothing wrong with money itself, but when we worship anything above God, it becomes an idol. And then um, from Luke 12, but God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. How can we be rich toward God? Invest in the kingdom of God by talking to God every day. Prayer is our direct line to the Almighty. Read the Bible. God's promises and answers for life are in there. Serve others with love by building bigger barns for God, not for ourselves. 
and again from Luke twelve thirty one. Seek the kingdom of God above all else, and he will give you everything you need. And again, this is a, a devotional written by Kathy Yoder, who is a devotional writer uh, that has a weekly column in the journal. And then uh, of an event, uh, a jambalaya dinner. United Lutheran Church at 315 Hamilton Boulevard will host a jambalaya dinner from 5 to 7 p.m. on Tuesday, February 13th. Cost is $15 a person, $25 for a couple. Children between 8 and 19 are $12.50, and the children under 7 are free. Menu includes jambalaya, biscuits, cornbread, corn on the cob, fruit, dessert, and drinks. Uh, if you want reservations but they're not required, you can call 712-560-4501 or email unitedlutheran315 at gmail.com. And our next headline is U.S. Pastors Battle Post-Pandemic Burnout. Post-Pandemic Burnout is at worrying levels among Christian clergy in the United States, prompting many to think about abandoning their jobs, according to a new nationwide survey. More than four in ten of clergy surveyed in fall of 2023 had seriously considered leaving their congregation at least once since 2020, when the COVID-19 pandemic began, and more than half had thought seriously of leaving the ministry, according to the survey released Thursday by the Hartford Institute for Religion Research. About a tenth of clergy report having had these thoughts often, according to the survey, conducted as part of the Institute's research project exploring the pandemic impact on congregations. The high rates of ministers considering quitting reflects the collective trauma that both clergy and congregants have experienced since 2020, said Institute Director Scott Tuma, principal investigator for the project. Everybody has experienced grief and trauma and change, he said. Many clergy members, in open-ended responses to their survey, cited dwindling attendance, declining rates of volunteering, and members' resistance to further change. I am exhausted, said one pastor quoted by the report. People have moved away from the area, and new folks are fewer and farther and slower to engage. Our regular volunteers are tired and overwhelmed. Some of these struggles are trends that long predated the pandemic. Median in-person attendance has steadily declined since the start of the century, the report said, and with fewer younger participants, the typical age of congregants is rising. After a pandemic-era spike in innovation, congregants are less willing to change, the survey said. And we'll now move to Dear Abby. Dear Abby, somehow I became the go-to person for everyone in my family, siblings as well as parents. I have the means, and for decades I have been happy to help. I recently lost a brother, and I assumed the people I've been there for would be there to support me. Abby, they all failed. Two didn't show up at all, and two came and left so fast my head spun. It was a two-part ceremony. My gathering was the first. I was so hurt I didn't want to go to the second gathering, but I wanted to honor my brother, so I went. Bad decision. My deceased brother had one enemy, and that person was invited to speak and ruined it all for me. My husband was so upset he told my family off and said that I had been crying for days. No one cared enough to contact me to clear things up. Instead, they doubled down and called me selfish for needing them to be there for me. Now I am hurt and upset and I have no family to turn to. 
Honestly, it's nothing new, but I think I'm so hurt because I feel this is the end of family functions forever. What do you think? Signed, full of emotion. And the response. I am sorry for your loss. Because you have been the family rescuer and in return retreated with disrespect and indifference, you have every right to be upset. I hope that in the future you will begin to develop relationships with people who show some reciprocity. Because you appear to come from a family of takers, enlarging your circle will give you a better chance to have a healthier, not to mention more rewarding, relationships. Please consider it. And that does it for today's reading of the Sioux City Journal for Thursday, January 18th. I'm Dagna, your reader today. You can access a recording of today's reading on our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And thank you so much for listening.